0: This is Love in Public, and I'm your host, Abril Sawarsa-Rivera. Joining me today is a very special guest, Lior Elizer. Lior is a UBC alumnus. She holds an honors BA in psychology and is the lab manager of both the Sexuality and Wellbeing Lab and the Memory and Imagination Lab at UBC. Her research interests lie at the intersection of mental health and sexuality and she is particularly interested in the mental health experiences of sexual and gender minorities. Lior has worked in social justice organizing and mental health support and has seen firsthand how inextricably linked the two often are. This, combined with the scarcity of social justice in the undergraduate psychology curriculum, inspired her to co-found the Intersectional Perspectives in Psychology Club. The Ip Club strives to champion intersectionality in psychology research by acknowledging and studying scholars who are currently incorporating an intersectional lens in their research. Thank you for joining me today, Lior. Where are you tuning in from?
1: Hello. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm actually based in Vancouver right now. So yeah, luckily I didn't have to move for covid um, which I feel very grateful for.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear. I am so thrilled to be speaking with you today. You know, when you're a kid and you are all giddy with excitement when you've got a field trip or a birthday party the next day? <laughs> <laughs> that's how I felt when I woke up this morning and I remembered that we had this conversation. Oh my god, me too. I've
1: been thinking about this for weeks. <laughs> I've been having like <laughs> fake conversations like while I'm in the shower. You know, some people oh, yeah. shower sing. I have like conversations
0: with Absolutely. people in the shower. <laughs> you get your hair out, you've got the mirror going, it's a whole setup.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I want to start us off on an optimistic note. I feel that we could all do with a little injection of optimism these days. What is one small sweet thing that has been getting you through these last few days and weeks, especially this semi lockdown of sorts in Vancouver? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um well,
1: the other week I was having like not a great day um, and I was talking to my friend and I was telling her about it. Um, and, you know, that in itself was was very nice and like she's very supportive. But then like an hour and a half later, she just knocks on my door with a box of donuts and it was just the sweetest thing. And like I feel Aww. so grateful to have her in my life, like totally unexpected. She just walked over and brought me donuts. It was so sweet.
0: That is adorable, and I think very well needed in times like these. Yes, definitely. I am going to shift gears. I often think about how so much of who we are is shaped by our family history and childhood geographies. Mm -hmm. Where's home for you? I would love to hear about how some of these things have molded who you are today.
1: Yeah, so um, I was born in Israel, in Tel Aviv. And um, when I was like a little under two years old, my family moved to Vancouver um, and I have been here ever since, minus a a short stint that I did in Kingston, Ontario for a couple years before I realized it was not the place for me. Um, Yeah, but my whole family still lives in Israel. So, you know, I try to go every year. um,
0: But yeah. So now, would you, would you say that you split your home between Vancouver and Tel Aviv? Uh, maybe emotionally, but not oh. physically. <laughs> it's, very, it's like a
1: 17-hour flight to get there. So don't, don't make it out as much as I'd like. But yeah, I definitely spent more of my time in Vancouver.
0: Mm. I want to make sure that we talk about an idea that is central to a lot of your work, and that is intersectionality. Yes. For any of us who are unfamiliar with the term, I wonder if you could define it in your own words. How do you normally explain it to someone who's never heard about it before? What does intersectionality mean to you?
1: Sure. Um, so usually I someone asks me this question and I start and then I end up going on like a very rambling rant. Um, so I'll give you like the short form, I guess.
0: Oh, no, we have time. Tell us oh, Tell amazing. us anything you want to tell us.
1: <laughs> um. So I think of intersectionality as understanding the way that different parts of a person's identity will intersect or overlap, if you will, um, to affect their lived experiences and the unique position that a person's identity holds will affect their, the way they move through the world in different ways. So like one of the original people who coined the term intersectionality, um, in an academic sense was Kimberly Crenshaw and she talked about specifically the experiences of black women who are at the intersection of race and gender where their experiences as black women is different than the experiences of white women as women but their experiences as black women is different than the experiences of black men um if that makes sense so yeah, so it's just like looking at someone's unique perspective and positionality, and how that really affects um, not only where they have privilege, but also where they, or sorry, where they don't have privilege, but also where they do have privilege.
0: And I love that you bring up Kimberly Crenshaw. I might be butchering this quote, but I remember reading something that she had written, and when she described intersectionality, she spoke about how it is this lens for us to see where power comes and collides and, and where it interlocks and intersects. Mm-hmm. I think that speaking about intersectionality provides us with the perfect opportunity to interrogate the ways in which psychological research has fallen short when it comes to the representation of marginalized peoples. Yeah, There is so much to talk about here, but I want to focus on two significant failures. And those are the characteristics of the standard sample space and the overemphasis on quantitative research. Let's start by talking about (laughs) the sample that's used in most psych studies. Yeah, (laughs) It is notorious for being made up of individuals who come from Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic societies. Tell me about why having an unrepresentative sample of the population is such a huge issue.
1: Right. Oh, my God. So many reasons. (laughs) Um, Well, for starters, psychology claims to be studying human behavior as a whole and kind of the general experience of human behavior. um, But in only looking at a very small subset of the population and then extrapolating results to include like everyone else who is not included in that sample is just like you know it doesn't make sense a and like b you're also missing out on so much social context like so much, so many of the constructs that are studied in psychology are so deeply affected by the social context in which a person lives and social context for someone who is like you know a first year undergrad student Um, at a university is educated is all everything you said like the weird sample their social context is so different than literally anyone else who isn't part of that sample so yeah I lost my train of thought a bit there but bottom line
0: we are missing out on so much as you have put it yeah Another shortcoming in psych research is our emphasis on quantitative research, research that deals with conventional data in the form of quantities and numbers, and our historical disregard for qualitative research, which uses data in the form of descriptive observations. Can you talk a little bit about why our Over reliance on quantitative research fails certain sectors of our society and specifically the way in which it can exclude Indigenous voices?
1: Yeah, um, so let me formulate my thoughts. Um, I think that personally, I have only recently started to recognize the value of qualitative research. I think that a big part of that is because. You know, I was in an undergrad psych program where I was taught that quantitative research is, um, I guess, better, (laughs) Um, and only recently really realized the value of qualitative research and of having both, Um, and I think in relying solely on quantitative methods you're missing out on the nuances of human behavior and human experiences that really lie at the intersection of identity. And yeah, it also kind of has a tendency to, I guess, gloss over the richness of the data that you're looking at. And like, again, like the richness of human experience when you're just looking at numbers and you're just trying to like fit everyone into... I guess, like, a specific category. Um, I read a paper that said that part of the reason why intersectionality is really difficult for psychology is because we rely very heavily on um, ANOVAs in our analyses, which are these, like, often, like, in its simplest form, like a two-by-two design, where you, like, put things into a category, right? Like, is it men or is it women? Is it, like...
0: Literally boxing people in.
1: Yeah. Um, And in that you miss everything in between. Um, And that's not to say like that there is no value in quantitative research. I think it's a super important research tool. Obviously, I don't think anyone will tell you otherwise. Um, I do think, though, that um, psychology, at least from what I've seen, psychology has really like shied away from qualitative research and i think that that in addition to quantitative research can really supplement the constructs that we're trying to study Um, yeah and then you
0: asked specifically about what was the second part of your question the exclusion of indigenous voices with our over reliance on quantitative over qualitative yeah so i think i
1: i will like say that i don't know too much Um, I myself am not Indigenous so I don't like can't speak from that perspective or that positionality but um, from my perspective I think it's the same like just missing out on nuance and also we had okay so one of our speakers at the journal club was Dr. Jeffrey Anseloos whose research is in Indigenous suicide primarily Um, and he was talking about how the mainstream measures of suicidality and suicide and psychology really don't capture the experiences experiences of indigenous populations. Um, not only like in the language they used and what they were measuring, but also the focus on suicidality as primarily pathologizing the individual. And something that he said was, when he asked um, Indigenous youth what would be like one thing that would change their perspective or their outlook on life, so many of them said having running water. And that is not something at all that like in mainstream suicide research, you would even think to ask. And I think from how I see it, you know, this is only a study that he brought up in the meeting, so I don't exactly know the details of it. But that information never would have come out if if they didn't ask, you know, if it was a if it was like a a like single answer
0: Your classic HSP question.
1: Study. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, that wouldn't have even been an option. And by asking that question and like leaving it open ended, you really get like you really understand people's perspectives and you understand um, what they need, where they're coming from their experience. Um, yeah. So I really do think that both are so important because they supplement each other, you know, with quantitative research, you can really get like a much broader sample and, you know, you can find research that is ideally generalizable to a much larger group of people, but with qualitative research, you really get into the nuance and the specifics and like really get to understand the experiences of what is usually a smaller sample size.
0: A hundred percent. I think you've put it beautifully. And what I'm hearing you say about qualitative research is how it really does make room for nuance, for richness, and for us to understand the full complexity of human behavior. Yeah. I've only named two issues that I've learned about in my first two years of studying psychology and already we can see how both of them cause a host of consequences and create the situation where too many voices go unheard. The great thing is there is this new level of awareness, a collective awakening about what is wrong with the way that we do research. I wanted to ask you about what makes you hopeful about the future of psychology research, but I realize that you've already answered that question for me with your new initiative, the IPP Club. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear about the story behind the IPP Club, its mission, and how you run your monthly dialogue sessions.
1: Yes. Amazing. I love talking about it. It's truly the best part of my year this year has been this club. It's been so rewarding and also so inspiring. The Not only the speakers we've had have been incredible and inspiring and so articulate and had so many really amazing and thought-provoking things to say, but also the members have just been amazing. The support that we got from members, people who come back every month to the meetings. Members have had like amazing questions and insight and comments. Like it really has been so heartwarming. Now every time um we reach out to a new author, we'll be like, last semester we had the most amazing members. They had really insightful comments and like, you know, to get them hyped up about their audience because there is there should be a lot of hype for the members. They're amazing. Um and also UBC has been really supportive, which like, has been super great. Like, we got, you know, they set us up with an email,
0: a Zoom account. That's how you know you've made it, when UBC sets you up with an email.
1: <laughs> I know. It's an email that has, like, an at psych.ubc.ca, so I feel, like, really official, you know.
0: <laughs> You're tuning in from their Zoom account right now.
1: I am, yes. Oh, yeah, you can see <laughs> my name. <laughs> um, so, okay, how did we start?
0: What was the... Yeah. What was the seed of, oh, we need to do this. There's a gap at UBC. Tell me about that.
1: Okay, sure. Uh, This is going to be a super long-winded answer. So I'll start from the very beginning. Um, The first time I learned the term intersectionality, I was like maybe 16 or 17 years old, just like uh, a junior counselor at a socialist Jewish summer camp and I learned the term intersectionality and it changed my whole life. And then I spent the next two years of high school trying to convince everyone that this is important to them too. Yes, exactly. Um, and then at Queens, so I did my first two years of undergrad at Queens, which is why I did a short stint in Kingston, Ontario. Um, I was really heavily involved in, maybe not heavily is the right word, but I was involved in social justice organizing. Um, I I remember my friend and I, we were in first year, and it was like our first semester, um, and we would go to these community, uh, community organizing events, and it would just be us. As first years and a bunch of grad students and a bunch of community members Um, and it was really cool Um, there were some really great events but anyway so at Queens I did a lot of that and I also noticed that in my psych classes there just was no discussion about this stuff that I was learning so much about outside of the classroom and there were so many opportunities where it could be addressed or included in lectures and textbooks, and it just wasn't there at all. Um, and then when I transferred to UBC, I kind of, kind of forgot about it in a sense. Um, I think subconsciously I was like, okay, this doesn't have a place in in psychology. So like I should separate my, you know, activist feminist life with my psychology academic life. Um, So in third year, I kind of like fell off the bandwagon in a sense, like let go of that part of my identity and that part of what I'm passionate about, what really drives me. Um, And then last year in my fourth year, I started talking to people about it and you know, started to realize again where there was really this gap in the curriculum and had so many conversations with friends, like pretty much anyone who would listen. I remember one time Victoria and I, so Victoria is the other co founder of um, IP for, for you listeners out there.
0: <laughs> oh, I've been calling it IPP. I feel terrible. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's okay. Honestly, you can call it whatever you want. It's fine.
0: <laughs> the if
1: club. Yeah, I mean, call it what you what you want. It's either way is correct. Um so yeah, Victoria and I had so many conversations about um intersectionality, and then it became intersectionality in our own lives, and then intersectionality in our own lives and psychology, and then what we wanted to do in psychology and um yeah. And then I I wanted to run a student directed seminar on this topic, but unfortunately they did not let me because I am no longer a student, which was kind of unfortunate. But I I was going to run that and then they wouldn't let me. So I was like, you know what, I'm I'm going to do it anyway. It's important. I'm still going to do it. Um, UBC will get on board. <laughs> um So I had the idea to start the journal club and then I got Victoria involved um, because we had been having so many of these conversations. Like one time we. We were working together in a lab over the summer and one time during our lunch break, we just spent the entire hour like angrily walking around UBC and just talking about why is intersectionality and social justice so crucial to psychology. Um, So. Yeah, I got Victoria on board and and then ever since then, it has become really incredible. Every month we, almost every month, we've had a speaker um, from different parts of Canada and the US and we even had um, a speaker who's a PhD student, Lucy D'Souza from UBC, which was incredible. Um, yeah, and what we're really hoping to do is just get students together who care about this or or maybe don't know so much but want to learn. Um, and get them talking and get them meeting each other and meeting people in the field. I think one of the most inspiring things has been just researching and hearing people who are actually doing this work in psychology speak about it. Um yeah, it's been really amazing. I I think there was another part to your question that I forgot.
0: No, no, not at all. I'm hearing you speak and I am feeling incredibly inspired. I also love that this idea was born out of, and I was visualizing it as you were speaking to me, Of it was born out of you and Victoria walking around campus and bubbling about the things that you are passionate about and want to see at UBC. Yeah. The IPP Club is, or the IPP Club is crazy amazing, and I want to talk more about it. One of the big themes that we explore on this podcast is community, what it means to find community, what it means to build community, and you've spoken about how supportive and engaged all of your members are. I want to ask, have there been any particular moments that have struck you as affirming and have made you think to yourself, yes, this is why I am doing this? Wow, okay, that's a good question. Um,
1: I think there are a couple that I can think of. I guess I'll start with the most recent, uh, which is one of my friends at the lab that Victoria and I are both a part of, the Memory and Imagination Lab. She sent me a message on Slack the other day um, just to tell me that you know last year she didn't know too much about social justice and how it can be integrated into psychology and that this year she's really gone on a journey of exploring that because she saw that people like Victoria and I and others um were so passionate about it and that she's just like really learned a lot about it and about herself and about how intersectionality is relevant to her own life in the past year and it was just the most heartwarming message ever. Um, and so inspiring and, and also like so kind that she wanted to share that with me. Um,
0: of course it's those moments where you feel like you can't rid yourself of the smile on your face. Yeah, totally. Um, and
1: then I would say our, uh, one of our first meetings of the journal club we had a speaker, Dr. Quinette Walton. Oh, I was lucky enough to be there for that one, actually. Amazing. Yes, from, I believe, University of Houston. Um, and she set up her talk as more of a casual discussion, which I loved because it really gave space for the members and the people who attended the meeting to say their own comments and it was all very casual and the space that was created felt really comfortable and really safe, um, which I'm hoping other people felt as well. Um, I don't think there's any such thing as like a totally safe space, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, But yeah, so I just, the whole meeting I was listening to what people had to say and the questions that were asked and how people integrated what she was talking about into their own research and their own experiences, and it was so incredible how engaged people were, the insight that they had. Um, I was just I felt so lucky to be a part of that.
0: Like I mentioned before, I, you know, was able to attend that session with Dr. Walton, and as soon as the meeting finished, I went and I found all her papers online. I followed her on Twitter, and. I agree with you that she created this warm and inviting space. And I think that that is also a rare talent that you and Victoria possess. I remember when I logged on for the first meeting, and it's over Zoom, you know, um, thinking to myself, how have they managed to get a whole bunch of strangers on the internet to feel like friends and to create this space where... You feel that you really can, and maybe this is the focus on intersectionality, but I very much feel that the space that you and Victoria create with your IPP sessions is one where everyone can celebrate the fullness of their identity. How do you go about that? And do you have any advice for other community organizers right now, especially during this pandemic? How do we bring people together in times that feel as isolating as they do now?
1: Yeah. Wow. I love that. Thank you so much for saying that. It's really an honor and like you really are making me feel like I'm doing something, you know, which is, which is, I feel really humbled. Um, I, I also think, I guess to your question, I feel like I have a lot to learn from organizers. Um, I feel like I am just at the beginning of, of my journey of learning about how to do this and how to do it well. Um, I, I guess my I I don't know if I have advice, but my approach, whether it was subconscious or not, is just to come as myself and just be honest about myself. Like Victoria and I started our first meeting by identifying who we are and what our positionality is, and kind of why we occupy the space that we do and where. What our experiences are, where we're coming from with all of this, so yeah and and I've been trying to you know be aware of the space that I'm taking up and the space that I'm creating for others and and trying to balance that like the space that I take and the space that i am I am hoping that others take as well.
0: Mm. I want to come back to this statement that you made earlier because I've been thinking about it. And maybe it could come across as controversial, but you said that there's no such thing as a totally safe space. Can you tell me more about that? Yes.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I think that... So, okay, this is also something we talked about in our first meeting um, because I think it's important. I prefer to use the term accountable space. Um, and what I mean by that is that people are taking accountability for the things that they say and how that may affect the other people in the room. I think that when we're having conversations about topics that are sensitive and so integral to people's identities and who they are, there is potential for people to get offended or people to, you know, maybe something to sit with someone the wrong way. Um, So in the sense that I say that I don't think any space can be a perfectly safe space is that like everyone makes mistakes um, because we're all learning about social justice. We're all learning how to do better. Um, and I think that part of that is welcoming mistakes and letting people learn from their mistakes. And which is also why we talked about calling people in versus calling them out, um, when we had our first meeting, but yeah, so, so there's always the potential for people to make mistakes, which is okay. It's part of the growing and learning process, but It's also important for people to take accountability and be committed to doing better and to learning from other people. And that's what I mean by accountable space is that, you know, it's okay if you make a mistake. Um, It's okay if if you if someone might be hurt by what you said, Um, not ideal, obviously. But what's important is the accountability and learning from that
0: Um, and then thanking that person for for calling you in. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's stunningly human what you've said about how you are committed to learning and how that there is still so much left for you to learn and how in doing that and in your own commitment to learning, I feel that you give permission for others to do the same. I hope. Gosh, I could speak about the IPP club forever, but I I do want to also, (laughs) I want to get into some of the other work that you are doing. Lior, it astounds me that you are only doing the IPP club outside of your full-time job. That to me is Uh, crazy. Full-time more or less. (laughs) Not quite, (laughs) not quite (laughs) full-time. You are a lab manager for two different psych labs on campus, the Sexuality and Well Being Lab, as well as the Memory and Imagination Lab. Tell me more about the work that you're doing with both of these spaces on campus. Are there any particular studies that you that are exciting for you right now? Yeah, um, lots, actually. So I am
1: currently in the Swell Lab. That's the Sexuality and Well-Being Lab. Currently doing a study on, um, actually, I'm, I'm trying to, like, we haven't launched this study yet. So I need to be careful about what I say about it. Um, facts about sexuality. Um, and just understanding people's, like, knowledge, attitudes, and opinions about sexuality, um, which I'm really excited about because I'm really interested in the field of sexuality. Um, and, yeah, and I also just really admire the commitment of actually of both of my labs to continually learning and doing better. Um, I'm in the memory and imagination lab and like you wouldn't think that inherently social justice would be a part of like a cognitive psych memory lab but the PI has been really committed to um, making EDI or equity diversity inclusion really core to not only the work that she does but also the people who are a part of the lab and the space that she creates and that's something that that both of my PIs have been really committed to, which has been really amazing. Um, Yeah, and I'm just just really, I feel really happy to be part of both of those spaces.
0: I want to expose myself and confess that I am a super fan of the work that is happening over at the Swell Lab. (sighs) And one of the big reasons behind that is what you've mentioned, their commitment to diversity and inclusion in all areas of their work. I wanna highlight a couple of glorious lines from their website. This is from the oh, Swell Labs. I want to bet that mission. I wrote it?
1: <laughs> I, oh, did you? Actually, oh, wow. it, I might have. It's, it's, you have to say what
0: it is first. <laughs> okay, I'm about to highlight your work, Lior. Maybe not. We continue, we'll see. <laughs> we continue to work towards creating an accountable and safe space in our lab. We do so by our commitment to continuing to learn about racism, sexism, and other forms of discrimination, and by mindfully conducting our research through an anti-oppressive lens. We know that this commitment is part of an ongoing learning and unlearning process. Did you write that? <laughs> yeah. Not to pat myself on the back too much. But oh, you yeah. can. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the podcast where we pat ourselves on the back. Amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't want this next question to come across as cynical, but I am curious to hear from you. And even more now that I know that you've written this statement. <laughs> How do you think that we put all of this into practice? How can we keep these inclusive, well-intentioned statements from just being lip service?
1: Yes, I think that's a super important question because um, in writing this, also, if you if you go onto the Memory and Imagination Lab website, you will notice um, a similar but not exactly the same statement that I also wrote on request of the PI. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought a lot when I was writing these about exactly that, like, you know, I don't want this to be just an empty statement. Like you, you say something, put it out in the world and then, you know, check off your diversity box and move on with your day. We have enough
0: empty platitudes.
1: Yeah. Like I don't want to be like putting up a black square and, you know, forgetting about racism afterwards. Ooh, that's a, that's a whole other thing again. Uh, But yeah, so that's something I thought a lot about. And What I have noticed in both my labs is that the PIs have been really intentional about the trainings that we've had. So, for example, in both labs right now, we are doing positive space trainings and doing that. Those are run by UBC um, and also doing like different gender and sex trainings in research that are online, like through CIHR. Um, and also in our, um, research proposals and in our manuscripts, we've been really consciously addressing our sample and like something, this is something small, but I think is really important is like when reporting on gender distributions in, in your sample, what happens a lot of times is they'll say like, you know, 54% women, and then just like leave it at that. And the automatic assumption is of this gender binary, you know, like 54% women, okay, the other whatever, I don't do math percent is our men. Um, But we've been intentional and like actually saying um, all the genders that have been part of our sample, which I think is important, something that Dr. Dawson in the PI of the Swell Lab has been talking about is talking to um, each of the members, of course, if they feel comfortable in the lab about their own experiences and how we can do better. Um, And I think that those little acts of and big acts of resistance within individual labs are so important to changing the culture of the entire field. and I have been really inspired by the commitment that both of my PIs and both of my labs have to this. I just actually today um, was reading over a grant that Dr. Palumbo, in the MI lab, wrote. And there was one section that was asking about um, sex and gender. And like I was just reading over what she wrote and all of it was so incredible um, and yeah, I, I again, I've already said this, but I feel really grateful to be working with such incredible people, like not just the PIs, but also the other people in the lab.
0: The opportunity to be working with not just researchers who are more than up and coming, but who are doing great things in the field, but also are posing this question of how can we do better when it comes to equity, diversity, and inclusion and, and making that central to their work. Yeah. I can imagine that that is inspiring and I can see why you're so grateful. Yeah. I want to digress and talk about, well, I'm constantly thinking about how what we read inspires how we write, how we speak, what we create, how we engage with our world. I'm curious to hear if you are reading anything at the moment or have read anything lately, academic or not, that has been shaking up your world. Um, okay, let me
1: think. God, I've read some really good things and now I can't think, what was the
0: name? Doesn't even have to be recent. It could also be in the last year, a pandemic read, a quarantine read. Okay, I have one.
1: Um. So I read a book recently. Right now I'm reading Unapologetic. I just remembered the name. It's been really good, but I'm I'm slowly getting through it because um, it's a bit of a of a dense read, but really interesting. Um, but I read a book called In the Dream House recently.
0: I love that book
1: by yes. Carmen.
0: Oh my goodness, what's her name? Carmen Maria Machado.
1: Yes, yes. Um, and it was like so incredible um and her story is like so sad but so powerful um and there's so much power in the way that she tells it um and also one thing that really stood out to me is that she talks about how often in queer relationships or i guess like people who have any sort of minority status there's this idea that you have to be exceptional in a way um and if if you aren't, you're like letting down every single other person in, of that identity and and giving like, you know, quote unquote, like a bad image for everyone else. Um, because it's kind of like if one queer person does a bad thing, then it looks bad on all queer people kind of thing. Um, and so she talks about how uh, domestic violence and queer relationships is not often discussed and not often um, like addressed when talking about domestic violence. Um, and I thought that was really important. And I I just love the way that she talks about it. Yeah, it was, it was so good. I would really recommend it.
0: Total agreement to with anyone. you. I also yeah. want to publicly declare my adoration for that book. I actually run a virtual book club with a focus on intersectional storytelling, and that's slated as one of our next reads. Oh my God. So I'm my glad joy. glad it up. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I um, I wish we could talk for hours, but I have one last question for you. Sure. The title of this podcast makes reference to a powerful quote by Cornel West, and that is, never forget that justice is just what love looks like in public. I want to close our conversation today by asking about what that means to you. What does love in public look like to you? I love that. Um,
1: I think. I think if I take this to be like, the most literal way um I think it's in like the small things like the first time that I held my girlfriend's hand in public and I was like wow I am being queer in a public space everyone can see it um and just like being okay with that and being really proud of that um that's at least what I thought of when I first saw the name of this podcast. As like, great love in public. This is where I'm going to talk about me being queer in public spaces. <laughs> um, <laughs> so,
0: go ahead, be our guest. <laughs> perfect.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, and just being—I—I I think there's a lot of power in in like owning your identity in public and saying like, "Obvi," I with the like, you know, saying that like not everyone can do that. It's not safe for everyone. And you know, that's totally important. Um, but if that is something that's safe and comfortable, just like, you know, this is me world.
0: You you can deal with it. <laughs> this is me world. I love it. Oh, thank you so much for showing up so fully as yourself today, Lior. I'm really grateful that you were able to carve out the time and hold this space with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It really is such an honor to be invited to do this and to talk to you and other people who are doing really incredible
0: work. Oh, thank you. That means the world. (laughs) I'm Abril Sarivera and this has been Love in Public. This podcast was brought to you by the Equity and Inclusion Office at the University of British Columbia. It was produced by Moses Caliboso. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Ben Robinson.